Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hello there and welcome to Thank the Maker, a podcast about heroes, princesses, scoundrels, hokey religions, ancient weapons, and all things Star Wars. I'm your host, Adam Russell. Hey, everybody. I'm your host, Ryan Key. Hello there. I'm your host, Nick Ambarian. And we have a special guest, an old friend of mine, probably my oldest friend in the music industry outside of my band, John Feldman of Goldfinger, producer of so many things. Hi, buddy. Where do you start? Hello. The list is long and distinguished. Thanks for having me, you guys. This is rad. Thanks, man. Thanks for being here. Sorry to just put you on blast about your age right off the bat, but I'm excited (laughs) to have someone on who is old enough to have actually seen the original trilogy in theaters, you know, at an age where you can actually remember things. Yeah, man. Um, I remember my, you know, my dad and I had a, just a, not the greatest relationship. Did you ever meet my dad, Adam? Once, really briefly, yeah. Yeah, because, you know, he was the last man to contract the polio virus in America. So he was like, you know, and it was gnarly. I mean, he lost the use of his um, left arm and his right leg. So he had a brace on his leg. And when I was like fully in my, you know, kind of punk rock party phase of middle school and high school, like he used to try and chase me down because I'd just be like, (laughs) and and he'd be running down the halls and I would just be middle finger in the air and he'd be trying to get me. And it was, I mean, in, in hindsight, it's a little terrible. Terrible, but at the time, I thought it was pretty classic, and um, we we didn't we we didn't get along the best. I mean, he he built the fuel that put the rocket on the moon. So the smartest man I'd, I'd ever met is my dad, and he's a nuclear oh, wow. physicist. I mean, when he got sick at seventeen, he just used his mind to kind of combat the vi- the polio virus, which you know was super gnarly. And by the end of his life, I mean, we had kind of made amends and we were okay. But you know, Star Wars was probably. It could be the first and last thing, as well, at least as a kid, that we really like connected on. And he took me to see it in 1977. I was 10 years old. And I remember all of it. I remember getting in his Dodge Dart and driving to the Century 24 Theater in Campbell. I grew up in the Bay Area. And this theater was like a dome. It was like the dome in Hollywood. And I just remember getting to the theater. I'd never been to that theater. And it was like, I mean, my parents were like super middle class and we ate spam growing up and we didn't have a lot of money. So we didn't go on like holidays. We, you know, once, once a month we'd have pizza and it was this huge thing. So going to the movies was a big deal. God, my kids are spoiled. You know, I just, I was just remembering sitting, you know, and they didn't have reserved seats back then in the 70s, of course. But I remember getting there and it was like sold out first week of opening and no one, I mean, it was just called Star Wars. It wasn't like a new hope, like everyone knows it to be these days. 
But I mean, the experience I'd never been, I mean, we, I'd been to the movies, but I'd never been to a sold out movie theater where everybody was like on the edge of their seat, like going, cause the reviews were crazy about this movie that just no one had made a movie like this up to this point. Right. It was just legendary on so many. So I'm getting goosebumps thinking <laughs> about that first opening that like John Williams score of like when that first note rings out, it was so loud. It went by like that. It was just like this experience. I'll never forget with my father. And I'm so grateful to have it, have had it with him. You know what I mean? And we shared this thing together. I mean, it changed everything for me. It was the first album I ever bought. I remember we went to Kmart and I saw the Star Wars soundtrack and I'm like, mom, you have to buy me this. And it was the first album I ever bought was, wow. God, it just, it just changed everything. You know, and I watched it a couple of weeks ago after, after you hit me up, Adam, I hadn't seen it in a while, you know, and, and the funny thing is, you know, I live my life. I mean, I have no time for negativity. I just don't. I mean, I wake up, I say, I love my life out loud, whether, whether I believe it or not, I say it anyway, because <laughs> I just don't have time for any negativity. And I feel the same way about the Star Wars lineage, like the prequels, the um, sequels, the Mandalorian, Rogue One, all of it. I just love all of it. I just don't have the same negativity that some of my people, my, I'm, I'm 52, and a lot of people of my age are just really, the, you know, four, five, and six. Those three movies, the originals, like, are like, this is it. It's cool. But I just love all of it. Us too. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We had a friend on the show, I don't know, a couple of weeks back, and he told a story about how he was at Galaxy's Edge and he was wearing a Return of the Jedi t shirt. And an older dude came up to us, like, oh man, sweet shirt. That's where Star Wars ended, you know? And he was like, why'd you have to say that? Why couldn't you just say sweet shirt? Why do you have to put your, your negative crap on me? I don't want, I don't want it. So yeah. we, we talk about it a lot, focusing on the fact that we love it. That's why we do that. Like, we love it. Is it all the greatest content ever made by man? No, but it's a positive it's force in our life. It's very close. It's very close. <laughs> but the sum of it, the sum of its parts is, yep. in my opinion, in our collective opinions, I was just thinking like, you know, in parallel universes that, you know, in anything that we do in life, like if I can make myself feel something, if I can write a song that makes myself cry or get pissed or want to work out or, or want to run around in a circle or whatever, like I know the world can feel that way. And conversely, mm -hmm. I think with any form of entertainment, that's what we're looking for at the end of the day. And when I was watching A New Hope a couple of weeks ago, you know, that end it's just that end scene, you know, how it all kind of comes together with that bum, ba da dun, da da dun, 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 and they just open the, the back door opens and like, you know, Chewie, Luke, and Han just kind of walk, they're walking down that, and it's like, God, I just, I couldn't help. I had to cry. My wife was kind of just in and out of the room because she's like, She's just not like me. And, uh, and I, and she's like, are you crying? I'm like, I can't help it. You know, it's just that moment is just so great when you just, you just think about like how they all kind of from different walks of life, you know, to I mean, it's weird how these things like kind of connect in ways for me with music and, and Star Wars. And I was thinking about what's that Kanye, Rihanna, Paul McCartney song, um, Four or five seconds. Four or five seconds, yeah. And I was thinking, it just kind of came in my head how those people connected from such different, diverse, but like still there's so much similarities, you know, growing up in Barbados on an island kind of with nothing and Kanye, you know, kind of growing up in, um, 
you know, not the greatest neighborhood from Chicago and, and, you know, coming from Liverpool, I don't know if you guys have been to Liverpool, but I mean, Liverpool sucks. I mean, and on a positive way, of course, it, it, it's like, you know, the greatest band of all time kind of put Liverpool on the map, but it's not like a place where you want to go on holiday at all. It's like the St. Louis of the United Kingdom. It is. It's like, it's, it's like just not, not the place that I think people that, you know, know the Beatles would think it is. You know, I was thinking like these three, you know, um, characters from this movie who came from such different backgrounds, Princess Leia and Luke Skywalker and Han Solo, how they come together. And and I don't even, I mean, you guys can probably educate me on Chewbacca's history. I don't know much about where he where he comes from, but I mean... Well, he's way, way older, so it's just like you producing my band. You know, I, th- I think about, it's just funny, he's, like in, my, in this business, like people talk a lot about like, you know, there's a certain age or whatever that there is. And for me, it's like, I've just always owned who I am. And I've always been so proud that, I mean, holy shit, like I started playing music at 12 and now I'm 52 and I haven't been able to do it for a living the whole time, but at least for the last 25 years I have. And holy crap, man, like I am so grateful to be able to still do it and feel like I'm doing shit that's relevant where um, I just watch so many people like not be able to. My friends I went to high school with, that ne- never happened for them. Look, I, I I'll have story of the year open for Goldfinger and I'll fucking crush you any day of the week, you young lad, you. Dude, I, I have to talk shit on you. You young 40-year-old guy. Yeah. <laughs> it's like uh, older brother banter. I have to. It makes me feel better about myself. It's all good, dude. I love you. <laughs> love you too, bro. Let's... Um, Star Wars. We could talk about how much we love this movie without any specifics for four hours straight, but let's, let's try to focus a little bit. So it should be apparent by now we're finally back to the beginning after 20 episodes... We're here to talk about Star Wars Episode Four: A New Hope. Ryan Key, Billy the Key, give us the opening crawl. It is a period of civil war. Rebel spaceships striking from a hidden base have won their first victory against the evil Galactic Empire. During the battle, Rebel spies managed to steal secret plans to the Empire's ultimate weapon, the Death Star, an armored space station with enough power to destroy an entire planet. Pursued by the Empire's sinister agents, Princess Leia races home aboard her starship, custodian of the stolen plans that can save her people and restore freedom to the galaxy. Dude, now thinking about this being negative two years old when this came out, I've forced myself to think about this as much as I possibly can in in like the context of the moment and watching some of the behind the scenes stuff, you get a feel for that. There were not movies like this happening at this point in history. In the 70s, it was a dark time for the world, for the U.S. especially, films kind of reflected that. Lots of anti-heroes, lots of like crime drama kind of things. I mean, Felder, you can speak to this maybe a little bit more. I know you were young, but you weren't seeing shit like this in theaters. You talked about it being this like unique experience. You weren't seeing a movie opening with this text crawling, this big epic kind of thing, this description. This is, I mean, it's just, it's incredible. And it's also way out of left field for the time. So Sci-fi, especially at the time, was very... Dark. Wasn't mainstream, yeah. It was all apocalyptic, end of the world, Planet of the Apes kind of stuff. So there was a combination, if you think about just the opening sequence of this film at the time, how jarring it must have been to an audience because that was the norm for sci-fi. And doing a little research for the show today, a sci-fi film, like a really good one, was making 15, 16 mil at the box office. And I think 2001 was the most successful sci-fi movie ever at that time. And it grossed like 24 mil. So they were 
small potatoes. And also the idea that like the John Williams score versus the kind of raging disco of the times, like you sit yeah. down and you're going to hear this crazy, massive London symphony or- orchestra score from the second the film starts rolling. Stuff you would only hear in like the Ten Commandments and yeah, Lawrence I think we're going to get into how strangely weird and cool it is that this movie is so weird and that it was such a massive hit right off the bat being as left field as it was for the time. And still even now, I mean, break down this movie. It's an odd one. Did you have any sense of that, Feldman, when you were a kid? Like, what were you watching up to well, this look, point? I really, when I had kids is when I really started getting along with my parents. But as a, as a kid, my parents were, they were really super Catholic. And so we weren't allowed to watch anything. There's a show called Solid Gold. It was this dance show that people like would yeah. wear like skin tight leotards and they wouldn't let me watch that. It was like, that was it's too. It's gold, it's gold, it's yeah, gold. Yeah, exactly. Gold. Like I wasn't allowed to watch it. So it was growing up. It was like Oklahoma, the music man. It was only musicals, which is definitely why I became an alcoholic later on in life for sure. Like the, the fucking <laughs> musicals. And uh, uh, yeah, how many times you watch the Wizard of Oz? <laughs> I've seen the Wizard of Oz. So, I mean, so many times. It's like, I mean, as a kid, it was like Star Wars was so clean for, and my, my, and it was, you know, Logan's run came out a year before and I'd seen parts of it. At a, I think we went to a movie with my friend and it was like not a movie my parents wanted me to see. I don't know if you guys have seen that movie, but it's really dark. And so Star Wars was like this thing that like, I don't know. It was just so exciting mm-hmm. and fresh. And to me, like I said earlier, like the music really set the tone for how I felt about the characters. Cause it was like almost every character had their own theme song, you know? For sure. And yeah. for me, that was legendary, like kind of becoming a musician later on in life and like thinking about band members and what their tone is. There's a lot of music in this movie too that's the thing i mean watching it you realize that almost the entire film is scored there, there's like no time when there's not at least even just a little bed of music under the dialogue like it's so much music it's like the music is a character the music is the voiceover in a way it provides like the unspoken emotional content we'll talk about this once we get to the end of stolen plans but like the way williams writes music and scores no one after him except for maybe Alan Silvestri writes scores that are simultaneously like a hook, yet don't distract you. Like the idea is for a score to support something and kind Enhance of enhance it, right? Um, be subconscious, but it's so in your face, yet it doesn't. There's never a moment where you're like bobbing your head, like, oh, now I'm listening to a song. It's like the voice of the fucking movie. It's incredible. Like I'm getting goosebumps just thinking about how ama- this dude's yeah, it en- super enhances human. the emotion, which is a crazy thing to be able to do, you know, and, but also not distract, which is what you said. It's brilliant. Crazy. How many of the star Wars movies has he scored? All the Skywalker sagas films. So not rogue one. No. Rogue One is like inspired by. It know? was interesting because it doesn't start out with the title mm-hmm. page. It doesn't yeah. start out with the music. It just starts out with the planet yeah. and one note. Yeah, yeah. yeah no, John, John Williams did all nine of the Skywalker films, which is also just crazy to think that he was scoring the first one in 76 and he scored the last one in what, what went 2019, 2018, whenever that was. It's crazy. I really like Ray's theme. So it's really idea. great. Like the way he uses those fifths, it's like this. There, and, like, and there's like two, two ridiculous hooks in that theme. Mm-hmm. There's the dun 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 And then there's like the, the flute dun, one. Dun, so a twinkly dun, one, yeah. Dun, yeah. Yes. Yeah, that that yes. beginning thing, yeah. It, so he's, he's, he's insane, dude. Do you know, like on his like old, when he was young, 
younger. I don't know how. It, when you see pictures of him scoring Star Wars in 2019 versus 76, you're like, this dude, he doesn't age because it feels like he should be like 300 years old now, you know, but <laughs> he's been in his um, late 70s for 40 years. In his early, early stuff, you can see records, uh, soundtracks he scored, and he, it was Johnny Williams, and not John Williams. And then <laughs> he, he was changed, like a jazz. I don't know when he changed dude, it, but it says, it says Johnny Williams on some of his early scores. God, I used to, my grandma used to call me Johnny, and I would get, I would get so pissed. I'm like, I'm not Johnny. I'm John. <laughs> <Hate that. laughs> it's like, it's so funny how things change, but I mean, he he must have been a, like a, a, a middle aged guy uh, during a new hope. His, he was in his thirty early thirties, I think. Oh, when, okay. he was, when he did the first Star Wars movies, forties because he's in his eighties now. Yeah. Oh, is he okay? So yeah, forty. Yeah. Last thing I'll say, and then we'll get to it. On that Ray theme, we talked about this in the Force Awakens episode. It's great how it's still like unabashedly straight up John Williams, but it's modernized. He has had no problem evolving. It's written with the pace of a modern movie in mind. Like mm -hmm. you think about the length of a phrase in A New Hope versus the length of a phrase in Ray's theme in The Force Awakens. It's that quicker, you know, and he couldn't have written one with these long phrases and these long kind of uh, riffs like he did back in the day because this movie was going to be edited more quickly or whatever. Yeah. It just checks. All, it's he's fucking superhuman again. That's my thesis statement. All right, let's uh, talk specifics and get into stolen plants. What have you done with those plants? Star Wars. Released May 25th, <laughs> 1977. Not a new hope. We'll talk about that later. Star Wars. Taglines. These are so funny now. Somewhere in space. This could all be happening right now. You hate when I interject on stolen plans because you want to get through them, but that is actually spoken out loud in the first trailer, which was made for the Christmas movies that year in 76, because the original release was supposed to be Christmas 76. Yeah. The whole summer blockbuster thing was a complete accident because they were behind schedule and then they had to just move it to the summer, but it was supposed to come out on Christmas, but they didn't have any um, like VFX shots at all for this trailer. <laughs> so it's like. Three shots, one from the cockpit of the Falcon, one of Luke gunning, like, and two lines of dialogue, and this guy going, somewhere in space, this could all be happening right now. And then it just says, <laughs> Star Wars, coming summer next year or whatever. Yeah, it's, with it's like wild. a totally different logo. Yeah. Even though the next tagline that they used is from the damn movie, a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. <laughs> that kind of negates the first one. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Coming to your galaxy this summer. That's on the teaser poster. That was probably at the end of some of the TV spots. I watched a bunch of those recently. And again, they're funny yeah. like, compared to what a trailer is now. Written and directed, of course, by George Lucas, starring new fresh faces. Mark Hamill as Luke Skywalker. Carrie Fisher as Princess Leia Organa. Anthony Daniels, C-3PO. Kenny Baker's R2-D2. Not seeing his face. Either of those guys. Harrison Ford. Newer-ish face, but he was in American Graffiti, Lucas's first major film. And then a handful of heavy hitters that were sort of, from what we understand now, sort of the studio pushing to get some star power and some experience on the cast. Peter Cushing, horror legend. He was uh, Van Helsing in one of the earlier big productions of Dracula. Sir Alec Guinness as Obi-Wan Kenobi. Bridge on the River Kwai was his big one. Yeah, I was going to say, I think it feels pretty cool to be a, an Oscar winning night. Isn't this a good? Yeah. You think you did it? I think you did Not it. Not too bad. You've done it, Alec. 
And one of the things to take, I mean, you know, just as a guy that started losing his hair at 17, like his wig and A New Hope, it's one of, there's a few things that take me out of the moment. His wig is, <laughs> is one of them. It's a nice rug. <laughs> yeah. It ties the room together. I wanted. I, I was going to ask. You know, how did they with a you know a guy that was sort of. I mean, George Lucas still an unknown. How did he get an Oscar award winning actor in this movie? The studio insisted on getting someone who could carry the weight of this whole thing. Also, from what I understand, Sir Alec Guinness just loved the script. He wanted to play this like sage old teacher in a good and evil story and he felt like the script was just the most brilliant thing and he was like sign me up i'm right i'll do it i mean you imagine reading that dialogue even probably the early drafts between luke and obi-wan telling the story in you know ben's crib that's a pretty solid monologue to read and think okay cool i can bring a lot to this yeah and he's probably at that age you, was feeling it. There was a few things that, uh, and, and I'm sure we can talk about this later as well, but there's a few things that like when Ben is talking to Luke about his father, George Lucas didn't know that Darth Vader was his father then, right? Yeah. According to George now, uh, he says he did, <laughs> but historical evidence suggests otherwise. Historical yeah, evidence, meaning, whole... the, meaning the movie, right? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> the movie. <laughs> We'll, the we'll, entire talk, script. we'll talk about it later, but there's definitely that scene has some weird continuity issues yeah. for sure. And there's stuff in his notes, all kinds of things. Peter Mayhew in the suit as Chewbacca. David Prowse in the suit as Darth Vader. James Earl Jones as the voice of Darth Vader, uncredited. Uncredited. We learned this like a month ago. Are you ago. sure? Because it was credited yep. when I just watched. They must have added it in, right? Yep. Yeah. At the time, o he was... Originally uncredited. Same thing with Empire, right? Yeah. I'll, I didn't look when I watched A New Hope. But when I watched Empire on Disney+, Plus, I, I stopped it and went back like twice to make sure I wasn't crazy. But he's not credited in Empire Strikes Back either. So crazy. Was he an unknown actor at the time? Um... We found a film. I can't remember it off the top of my head. He had done one thing maybe, but I, it really was after this. In the, the 80, early and mid-80s is when he started doing like the Tom Clancy movies and Field of Dreams, all that stuff. You yeah. know, he, yeah. he kind of blew up after this. So We're stepping on uh, Den of Antiquities right now, but I'll say he got paid, what was it, $7,500 for this? Yeah. Which is about thirty grand today in $2020. Yeah. Not a bad paycheck, but given the fact that he became an icon from it yeah i wonder what that got renegotiated to for all the subsequent stuff i'm sure he's doing just fine james yeah. earl jones for yeah. the voice yeah. yeah he's doing fine yeah i mean i don't know last time you've been to disneyland but <laughs> his voice is at disneyland he's doing <laughs> yeah. just fine yeah score by john williams of course like we talked about before i mean we couldn't help it i was gonna say save all the shit about john williams until now but we already said it he's brilliant He's superhuman. We're good. We did it. You know, what I wanted to ask as well is the cantina scene with the music that they're playing in the cantina. That yeah. isn't my favorite music in the movie. And I wonder yeah. what was the genesis of deciding to have this kind of big band, you mm -hmm. know, playing oboes and clarinets. <laughs> yeah. well, I mean, I wonder, it must have been George Lucas's idea, right? If he wrote. Yeah, well, apparently the cantina scene in general was kind of a disaster. So a yeah. lot of stuff was like added to spice it up. A lot of stuff in post. And I, clearly he wanted the song to be a part of that, I think. Yeah, it's such a almost like happy kind of song mm -hmm. for a very un, not happy scene. I mean, that's 
probably a, a purposeful juxtaposition, yeah. whether that was Lucas's choice or, or John Williams. But you definitely hear John Williams' jazz background in that, you know. Johnny. That was Johnny Williams. Jo- yeah, that was. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Uh, and for what it's worth, it's, it is now in this moment laser etched in my brain. I'm, I'm, I can't, un- yep, I can't hear any. I, I can't even hear you talking. I can't hear anything else other than that melody right dun, now. Dun, 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 dun. Yeah, yeah, I know. It's like, and, and, it's and, one you, of those... and you figure if music is cyclical, and I'm sure they, 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 they took some thought into what the music would sound like in an alternate universe in the way past. But I mean, it's just weird why they would think if, if we're kind of going back now and it's this kind of an 80s music revolution, you know, now, 40 years later, like, you know, maybe they just went through and, and, and counted the years ahead thinking yeah. this is what would be... <laughs> <laughs> returning you know yeah yeah it's weird though if you pull it away from star wars and listen to it um like a b between that and other similar goofy ass music at the time it doesn't age well but it also like everything with star wars just turns off the part of my brain that doesn't let things age well and it just mm-hmm. exists it mm-hmm. just you know what i mean like it exists outside of time and space no, I love weird. that. I love that theory. And, and and I do the same thing. Like when I've been, I've been to Galaxy's Edge, you know, probably five times and it's the same thing. I go there and it just, I become part of it. I'm not like, there's no like looking at what's in the trash can or what people are right. wearing. I just, I'm yep. just there. And that same thing happens when I watch any Star Wars movie, I just become part of it. And I get that that's what they're playing and I can't change it. It's just had electronic music music or dubstep existed in, in 1977, you know, right. maybe it would be a different thing. But um, conversely, like there's a conversation to be had about it, which is pretty cool. You know, yeah. using this kind of big band mu- music was intentional. Mm-hmm. Original runtime, two hours and one minute special edition or whatever you want to call the current edition, two hours and four minutes runtime. For the little bit of extra bits added, the Jabba scene and the document. And weren't there oh, yeah. other weren't there other space fighting scenes that they enhanced as well? There's like one shot of the X wings coming up on and the Death Star, right? Yeah. yeah, but the vast majority of the special edition stuff didn't add any time. They were just enhancements. Rated PG, PG thirteen didn't exist at that point. Budget estimated eleven million, which is forty six million in today's dollars. That's a shoestring budget for what they did. Unreal. And we're, we're going to talk about some stuff from the documentary Empire of Dreams, but really just do yourself a favor and go watch it. It's on Disney+. Plus. It's on the special features of any of the DVD releases, right? I've watched it like 10 times. So if I sound smart in this episode, it's just, I'm, I'm cheat. It's all cheating. It's all <laughs> stored in my memory from watching that documentary because it's so mind-blowing. The making of A New Hope is, is the documentary you're talking about? It's, it, it goes into Empire and Jedi as well. The, the meat of it is, is A New Hope because it kind of just tells the story of how he created the story and it all started, but it goes pretty in-depth. It's, it's two and a half hours long. It's pretty long. It's two and a half hours long, I think. Yeah. yeah. So it goes into Empire and Return. It does do the whole original trilogy. But the meat, the first hour, hour 15 is, is just on Star Wars. There's so much to be told in the making because they invented technologies for all of this. They were building computers from the ground up to do the motion control and all this kind of shit that we'll probably talk about later. Yeah. Did they have a full-scale Millennium Falcon in the movie? Uh, uh, they had a set. They built one on, on a soundstage, yes. They carpentered it together with wood and foam, and it's crazy. Which is what Harrison Ford was at the time. He was still a carpenter. 
Because I mean, yeah. his role in in American yeah. Graffiti was so small. It's yeah. like yeah. he he wasn't some making a living right. off right. of acting. He was still right. a carpenter, and which which is you know kind of interesting. Chris Cheney from The Living End, the singer of The Living End, bought Harrison Ford's first house that he built in um, the Hollywood Hills, right by the Hollywood Bowl. No way. Yeah, which is pretty cool. And I've been been to that house a bunch. And it's just so cool that you walk over this little bridge that Harrison Ford built himself, you know, back in the 70s. Pretty cool stuff. Back when he still smiled. That's amazing. <laughs> I, saw, I saw him at La Pond Quotidian and, um, with my son. It was just my son and I, when my son was probably about four, and Harrison Ford were the only people there. And he walked out and it was of the, of the restaurant. And I was like, and he had his earring in. And it was just, I was <laughs> like, I, I mean, I've never, that was the most starstruck I have ever been. And he looked at us. And he smiled and it was like, oh, shit. it was this mo- moment that I was like, you know, what am I, I'm not going to, what am I going to say? You know, that he hasn't heard already. Right. Right. And I just told right. my son, I said, that is fucking Han Solo. That is Han <laughs> Solo, right? It was like crazy. And I'll tell you just one, while I'm thinking about it, like um, I was going to a meeting this one time in West LA and. I was telling my friend that we're just walking to this meeting. I'm like, if you get chosen to speak at this meeting, you've got to wear a suit and tie. It's like kind of a conservative meeting and you have to, you have to shave. You can't, you're not allowed to have a beard at this meeting. And, and I hear this voice behind me and she goes, that's not true. That's only if you're taking a cake or that's only like, and I turn around and it's just me and my friend and it's Carrie Fisher yelling at me, <laughs> yelling at me for what I'm saying wrong. And it was like, I was like, I just got yelled at by Princess Leia. I'm like, this is the best day of my fucking life right here. You know, it's weird Amazing. how, you know, you, cause living in LA, you, you see actors all the time. And, yeah. but again, like Adam, like you were talking about, even in those moments, like I didn't necessarily see Harrison Ford's earring or the whole thing. I just saw him. I mean, he was on solo and she was Princess Leia. Like there was no coming out of where my mind was. It's awesome. All right, back to Stolen Plans. So 11 million budget, it grossed 1.5 million opening week in the US. That would have been a really limited opening, just a handful of theaters. I don't remember the number off the top of my head, but I know it was small. That's still only 6.5 million (laughs) adjusted for inflation, but it then grossed 461 total in the US, which is 1.9 billion by today's numbers. Dude. And that includes re release and so on. 775 worldwide, which is 3.2 billion. This is the first movie and the only of all the Star Wars saga that actually won a bunch of awards. Nominated for Best Picture, Best Actor, and a supporting role for Alec Guinness, Best Director, Best Writing. Even those nominations, none of the other films got that. It won Best Art Direction. Best Costume Design, Best Sound, Best Film Editing, Best Effects, Best Music, Special Achievement for Sound Effects for Ben Burt, Legend. So despite the fact that it didn't win Best Director, Best Writing, the fact that it was nominated, like we talked about before, a sci-fi film at this time, that's massive. I was going to say too, just quickly touching on the budget and the grosses, remember when I said that the most successful sci-fi film like of all time at that point made $24 in those dollars yeah. then. You know, it's, it's insane what he did. With yeah, they did everything. And it's all about story. I mean, whenever you see a movie that whatever, I mean, any movie that people just love globally is always about the story, but they just did it all. I was just thinking about like, no matter what, the sound of a TIE fighter, mm-hmm. R2-D2's 
way he, he speaks, you know, Chewbacca. I mean, all these things that are just timeless, that just keep going. I mean, it's like the way that the, each person deserved their awards that Adam just listed off that they won is incredible, that they just nailed everything perfectly. Yeah. yeah. Everything's a hook. You know what I mean? It's like writing the best pop song of all time. Yeah. <laughs> Let's see. Um, 8.6 on IMDb, 92% on Rotten Tomatoes with a 96% audience score. The good old Not days. bad. 90 on Metacritic. And what gets 100? Like Casablanca or some shit? It's like, really? <laughs> yeah. I'm, it's uh, Citizen Kane, How right? is it yeah. not 100? Truly. That should be the scale. Like, from the room to Star Wars. Like, the, <laughs> that's zero and 100. Like, <laughs> that's funny. I haven't seen the room yet. I almost watched it a couple days ago, but. Oh, man. It should be 100% fresh, just on principle. <laughs> Do any of the Star Wars have 100 on Rotten Tomatoes? No. The highest rated one is Empire at, what, 96? Yeah, and the highest on IMDb as well. And what about Rogue One? I'm curious. Uh, uh, 84 is Rogue One. Huh. Really? That end scene, that's the best Darth Vader. For me, it's my favorite Darth Vader oh, so moment good. of any of the films. It just shows Revenge of the Sith. When Darth Vader goes and kills all those kids, like, I mean, that's probably just right below... When he just go when when they show him entering the ship and trying to get the plan, I mean, like, ignite the lightsaber in the dark and the smoke. Oh, and then holding all the resistance rebels, yeah, just holding them up on the ceiling. It's just so incredible, oh, so man. Yeah. It's like just, Ryan always says, it's Star Wars porn. Yeah, that, my term for those types of scenes is Star Wars porn. So, I mean, he is the best villain so of all time in my book, and yeah. just that scene just really solidifies it. This movie, despite its shoestring budget, was shot all around the world. So they shot the Yavin stuff in Guatemala, all the Tatooine stuff famously in Tunisia. They shot in Death Valley, Arizona in the U.S. They shot some stuff in Mexico. All the special effects, all the ILM stuff, all the miniature stuff was shot in California in the Bay Area. And then the majority of the principal photography was done in England, which is where you get you know, a lot of the small names are just, you know, the extras. Everyone seems to have an English accent in the empire. I, I feel like that really came from just being there in mm -hmm. England and, and hiring they did, locals. They did pull a lot, well, like casting-wise, while they were over there, I think. And England was also appealing to Lucas and the whole production because at the time, I guess, there was just a real, like, wealth of giant buildings for sound stages compared to yeah yeah what was available in the states so that was really the motivating factor to go is because the, the scale of the sets they needed to build needed these massive warehouses yeah typically like our first impressions kind of shit that we go through where were you the first time you saw it how many times in theaters we already kind of hit on that yeah three out of four of us were negative three and four years old so none of that but um i want to talk about just a minute talk about the characters because we take for granted now who these people are, who these characters are in our lives. But it actually, all of these characters were written based on ideas that the world also took for granted as moviegoers, as, as consumers of fiction. Lucas pulled from classic archetypes of, of storytelling, of mythology. And he did it so well that Star Wars, after this, became something that was taught and still is taught in universities as mythology. It has literally become modern mythology for us. We always talk about how it's kind of like our religion, being the kind of people that we are and the kind of like worldviews and experiences we've had. And so much of it came from the teachings and writings of a dude named Joseph Campbell, who we've talked about quite a bit as well. 
he wrote The Hero with a Thousand Faces. He was sort of a, a modern philosopher and studier of mythology, and he, t- he sort, of, sort of aggregated everything about mythology and taught it in a way. It's almost like that, uh, that documentary series, Everything's a Remix. He kind of looked at the entire history of, of writing. Wasn't he kind of trying to find the, the similarities between all these ancient civilizations and their storytelling in that like, yeah. they weren't sharing information with each other, but they were all writing the same types of, of journeys and stories and archetypes. Right. And so he was trying to analyze that and figure out why. Pretty so cool. the idea of the hero's journey, this simple, very self-contained movie that spawned this whole saga, I mean, it's, it's a straight up hero's journey. You meet this kid in obscurity, you know, in a small town who becomes a hero in less than two hours on screen. And it's hard to beat that. I don't think there's anything else in storytelling that is that captivating, that compelling. That kid's story combined with the idea of the old wise sage in Obi-Wan, the damsel who turns out to not be in distress, but be a badass with Princess Leia. And then kind of the grounded sort of cynical character with Han Solo, 3PO and R2, these kind of sidekicks that are there sort of for comic relief. All these elements are, I mean, you, you go back to any piece of classic writing going all the way back to the beginning of human history, you find these themes and Lucas just made a new one for modern audiences. We could do a whole series of podcasts about these characters and why this all works. But instead, maybe just go to Wikipedia and search Joseph Campbell and start there. <laughs> he, was, he, he worked hands-on with Lucas, too. He, he, Lucas was able to bring him in. Yeah, and, he was a student of Campbell. Yeah. yeah, and have him kind of consult, you know, saying, like, am I doing this right? Am I, are these archetypes being developed properly? Think of, like, your teacher, you know, you're now this big-time Hollywood director, but he probably was completely nerded out, like, psyched to have his teacher there working with him. Like, he was a star to him, you know what I mean? Yeah. It is it is interesting like the whole idea of the spiritual aspect of this movie cuz like I mentioned earlier like being raised catholic I, I just I never it just I, I never connected with the idea that there's one omnipresent power that just there's one thing that controls everything I just never Same. connected with that idea it just never I, I just didn't understand how that would work you know what I mean it just logically didn't make sense to me and and you know when Ben is talking to Luke about the force you know the thing that binds us and it's like as a kid I wasn't really thinking about you know life and death and the meaning of life any of that stuff but you know as an adult as I got older you know especially when I got sober and the idea of a higher power and that there is something that's like, you know, keeping us all on this planet by the uh, the way we're rotating just so we have enough gravity that we don't float into space and like how there is some Albert Einstein talked about universal laws and Stephen Hawking talked about these universal laws that allows us to be able to live and breathe and and the way that everything has been created and for me like the force is the thing that I've always gone back to. And I pray because it's part of like my program of of staying sober. I've been sober for a long time. And part of the reason I stay sober is my belief in, in that there is something greater than me that's controlling all of it. And the thing that makes the most logical sense of anything is the force over over (laughs) anything that I've studied, you know, whether it's Buddhism or Judaism or whatever it may be, the force kind of just makes sense to me. And anytime in any of the Star Wars episodes, when they talk about the force. The force is what gives the Jedi his power. It's an energy field created by all living things. It 
surrounds us and penetrates us. It binds the galaxy together. I just feel so connected that there's a power in me I just have to tap into that is greater than myself. That is the thing that I connect with more than anything in these movies. And I'm just so grateful that they put that in there. Because in the 70s, people weren't really looking to religion to save themselves, you know. And it's certainly my parents lost faith right around that same time. And I'm so grateful that George Lucas put that in there. That even in the future past, which Star Wars takes place in, that they still rely on a power outside of themselves to guide them is so huge. It's you like, know? it's a greatest hits too, you know, you think about it, the idea of the force. And if you look across ages and religion and the different schools of thought and teachings, it's just the best parts of all of them. And mm -hmm. I, I love the idea of destiny that is in there, which I think plays to the whole idea, which is in many religions of the deity giving us free will. And the idea that they talk a lot about things being destined, but you still have the power to change your, your destiny in Star Wars. You know what I mean? The Emperor and Vader believe that it's Luke's destiny to turn to the dark side, but he doesn't. I'm totally with you on all of it. I was holding back all the man tears while you were speaking just now because I feel the same way about it. And I talk about Yoda a lot being a real teacher of mine throughout my life. The movies wouldn't be what they are to me. They wouldn't hold the weight they hold if it was just a space adventure. The force is everything. It's also non-discriminatory. It's literally just good mm -hmm. versus evil. And the good side is so many different races of people and aliens and all this type of stuff. And it's just good versus tyranny, you know? And, and I think that that's a good universal message that was there from the beginning. And I think that that's super, super important and will never, ever get old. Yeah. The good side is all different kinds of people. The bad side is also all different kinds of people, but it's a very universal good versus bad, which is great. Yeah, I love too how in Christianity and what I studied is there was God and there's the devil. And with the force, the force isn't that. Mm -hmm. Like they say, what do you want to feed? The good wolf or the bad wolf today? And like I say, I say I love my life no matter how I feel, good or bad, because I want to tap into the good energy and I want to feel good. I don't want to be negative. You know, as a kid, you grow up and you become cynical or whatever it is you're hanging out and you think it's funny to make fun of other people or whatever it is you're doing, you know, trying to find out who you are. But as I've grown up, like I want to only focus on what's right in my life because they say you can't be resentful and grateful at the same time. Like if I, and it's the same list. If I make my gratitude list, it's really the same list of, of resentment. It's like my goddamn kids won't go to sleep or my beautiful kids who I love more than anything or my goddamn wife who spends all my money that I work so hard or my wife that loves me and is loyal. What, like, what is it? Like, what do I want to focus on? The good parts of it or the bad? And like Darth Vader at one point, you know, obviously in the trilogy, in the original trilogy, just decides to focus on what's right in his life, his son, and protecting his son in the end of his life. I love that idea of the force is there for everyone to use. It's your choice how you want to use it. It's fucking poetry, man. I don't know where we are because I'm, I'm all caught up in emotion. Let's, let's get into a certain point of view. A certain point of view? Many of the truths we cling to depend greatly on our own point of view. So this movie being 40-some-odd years old now and having been altered after the fact in many ways starting early on 
also having spawned this entire saga with all of these tangential stories and extrapolations of different ideas that Lucas maybe didn't necessarily, as historical evidence suggests, understand from the very beginning, there are some things that we need to do a little mental gymnastics to reconcile from a certain (laughs) point of view. We'll talk about some of the more controversial ones, maybe to start. So Han shot first in the original. It's a big one. Han shot Greedo, the bounty hunter, in the most Eisley Cantina. He's at the table with him there. He's got a gun drawn on Han. Han owes Jabba money. Greedo's there to collect it or to bring him in, bring him in warm or bring him in cold. (laughs) And after this exchange, which is clearly a, a threatening situation for Han, there's a gun in his face. Han under the table, unbuttons his holster, and just, bam, shoots Greedo under the table, lights him up. Sorry about the mess. Yeah, head down on the table. Straight cowboy style. Yeah, it's Wild West, which is one of the inspirations for the story of Star Wars. I mean, that was Western serials and, and space serials, and it's all stuff he used. They're literally in a saloon. <laughs> yeah, you know? yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Han is a space cowboy. Some people call me the space cowboy. <laughs> so in subsequent versions... This has been altered. I guess it was the first special edition in the late 90s where they switched it up. They added with some, I can say now, lovingly, some janky early CGI. (laughs) They kind of scooted Han over. Greedo shoots. Blaster bolt hits the wall. Han shoots almost immediately after. I'm guessing that the idea is to make Han not such a scoundrel. Lucas wanted to kind of tone it down a little bit, make it more justified. (sighs) I mean... It's, That's it, it's a, I guess? It's an interesting gripe to talk about, though, because I guess we could talk about being disappointed in the change, but I think it's cool to be able to recognize that you don't agree with the change, but still, the original one is what, what it was. Like, it's still there. I mean, I know you can't watch it. It's literally illegal, but I have the Dropbox link, so come get me. I mean, pick a VHS off of my shelf right here. I can get you. Right. So in that original version, it's always going to be there. So it's like... His head was in the right place when he made it, and I think it's absolutely essential to Han's character that he, I mean, like you said, he had a gun in his face. It's not controversial. It's not, like, up for debate. Like, why would he have done that? What a low life. I think we can file this away in the Lucas overcompensation folder. (laughs) I think building his character out to be not the greatest guy, the way he talks to Leia and the way, you know, calling her sister and just everything that he kind of does is like... Sweetheart. Yeah, yeah, all of it. Just building him out is to be not a great guy. It just makes it all so much better when he comes to the rescue at the end, you know, when Luke finally fires the shot that destroys the Death Star and he comes out, you know, it just makes it so much better. And when he wins, like I said, when I was crying when he won the award, it's like, because he made that decision, because if 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 you think about who he was when he collected all the money when he when he was on mm-hmm. at the rebel base you really thought when i first saw the movie i thought he was done that he had made his decision that that's just who he was you know he's just going to take the money and run and so all these things built up to me to be at the end that turn of character right in the non-shooting first version it just it doesn't give you that same weight he's now defending himself you know which i guess anyone would do but the idea that he's like no i'm you don't point a gun at me bud that's not how it works around these parts yeah i'm space cowboy adam you mentioned that kind of like janky early cgi where they like moved han over i think that's still in there a little bit yeah i don't know that that's taken out i i think he now shoots first again but i think that little like you kind of see janky like he moves his head a little bit yeah so it's been adjusted like three times there are some youtube clips out there 
And there's a great Twitter account that I'll try to find and put in the show notes that compares all the changes throughout the years. Mm -hmm. Now the Disney Plus version, and I don't know if this was in the arrangement in the sale where Lucas said, okay, when you finally release so-and-so, I have a list. They shoot at the exact same time. And Greedo goes, McClunky. Yeah. So now there's the McClunky meme. They shoot at the exact same time. He still does move, but I think all that's cleaned up a little bit. And Mm -hmm. they've done that over the few different versions. Because at first it looked like somebody got Photoshop and they're like, look what I can do. Now it looks a little better. So that is what it is. Like you said, it's fine. Ultimately, like there's a gun in his face. If they shoot at the same time or he shoots first, some people call him a space cowboy. Other special edition changes though, adding the Jabba scene immediately after that, that's been through some evolution as well. It's been cleaned up. I, I think it's just redundant. I don't dislike it aside from the CG being a little weird. There's actually some funny lines in it. It's kind of witty. He calls him a, you know, a wonderful human being at the end or yeah. something, you know, but uh, it's just redundant. Greedo already runs down all of those points. And I think that's why he took it out in the first place. So it's weird that it was put back. Jabba yeah. was initially a, a human, right? Yeah. That's why they had to add the weird thing where he goes around the back of him and steps on his tail. Yes. Yeah. Speaking of janky CGI. Well, I know if I'm going to take an issue with it, that's really, not, that's always my issue. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I can't remember. I've read about this, and I, don't, it's, I thought there was something to the fact that Lucas didn't want to put the scene in because he did want Jabba to then— he, he had already decided maybe that it wasn't going to be a human playing it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, at some point in production, and, he, and they couldn't get it what he wanted it to be. And so the scene was just left on the floor. I yeah. Think. Yeah, I'm with that. I'm with Adam with on that. You know, I, I I call my dogs the best human beings all the time. You know, <laughs> it's just like yeah. I just I just think that that's a funny. It's just something funny to say. And I think Han yeah. is a really yeah. witty, funny guy. And, and that's th- how I took it. Mm-hmm. Generally speaking, we've talked about this before, and we mentioned it earlier. Star Wars is a weird movie. There's an article that I'll, I'll actually put in the show notes. The idea that we don't meet the protagonist until 20 minutes in. We spend all this time in this slow build with these space robots. Granted, we jump right in the thick of it. We've got the boarding of Tantive Four. We meet Darth Vader. We meet Princess Leia. There's all this really cool action. But then we spend all this time in the desert. It's really weird. It is. It's The first act is so remarkable yeah. that people went into the theater and from the stories they say, I mean, Feldy, you know, you were there. You were 10 years old. Everyone from the start was just like, you know, saucer-eyed at the whole thing. And like you said, Adam, there's no Luke Skywalker for 20 minutes. You know, it's like yeah. there's no character that seems to be like part of the story. It's just these two robots yeah. walking around in the sand. And it's not bad. It's just it is weird by today's standards, I guess. Yeah. Like, I guess growing up, did we notice that? Because I didn't. And now watching it with a different perception of not only time, but filmmaking, other Star Wars being done. It's so slow. But mm-hmm. I didn't think about that when I was a kid, you know? Like, no, because you I were didn't... watching robots. It's exactly. the coolest thing you'd yeah. ever seen. It yeah. is something that you showed it, if you showed it to adults now who haven't seen it before, they're like, uh, this is this is the movie yeah. that you guys are talking about. <laughs> was that was the big scene on the rebel base added later when they reconnect Luke and Biggs? Or was that always in? 
Oh, that was added as well. Yeah, yeah. that yeah. was added. Right, they got the mustache, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Because I was thinking when I watched it a couple of weeks ago that like why they would trust Luke to fly an X-wing fighter wh who's never flown one before, right? Who's, <laughs> There's that. You know, it's like the idea that this kid. A farmer is going to kind of be out there fighting. But conversely, he's just got enough knowledge of the force to be able to actually trust his instincts. Yeah. And obviously, he's trained on Tatooine, right? I mean, he has done some training. They used to shoot womp rats, right? Is yeah. yeah, he's got a reputation, I guess. It's established somewhat that he has skills operating a vehicle, you know, I mean, and I think that's as far in the in the world of fantasy as they wanted to go. And also exposition is not a thing in, in Lucas's Star Wars at this point. It's just mm -hmm. like, shoot it, go. We done next. Yep. Cool. Go. I mean, getting to like some drawn out instruction of how he could learn how to, it's just not in the cards, but he had to get in the X-Wing. So, but writing wise, despite all the complex dialogue, there's nothing that establishes that aside from that scene, Feldy, which you mentioned which does make sense to put back in there because it's almost like, oh, this is my guy. Yeah, I can vouch for him. Mm -hmm. Yeah, trust my mustache. This kid can fly, you know? <laughs> yeah, look, I, I get it. And I think part of the charm of watching it, you know, again, years later is the idea that Luke, you know, came from such humble beginnings and he really was the only one that could do the job because of the limited time he spent with Ben Kenobi. No one else could, like, they couldn't rely on computers. They had to rely on faith. Mm-hmm. And the Rebellion is, as we know now, especially from seeing Rogue One and a lot of stuff in Rebels and some other extended universe stuff, a pretty ragtag operation. You know, we perceive them as this big fleet, but we know now they were just pulling shit together, whatever they could do to make it work. So it's not like he had much of a ladder to climb. It was like, you can fly. You, you ready? You ready to do this? It's almost like, you know, Independence Day, like, I'm pilot. I can fly. <laughs> it's like, like the Russians in World War II. Like, can you point that yeah. gun that way? Cool. You're going to the front. Yeah. And I, I didn't, I mean, when I was watching, I wasn't really questioning the idea that Luke wouldn't be able to fly an X-Wing fighter. I was just thinking that. But it is funny to think about. Like, you, you have a point. It's funny. Like, yeah, but, but, but conversely, like Han, he's talking to Han one second, right? And he's saying, like, you're really going to bail on us. You know, I'm going to go mm -hmm. out there and risk my life. And the amount of courage that it took for a kid who, like we just talked about an hour and a half earlier, was like, I'm not going on any rebel. Yeah, I got chores. Yeah, yeah I got chores to do. Exactly. And next thing you know. <laughs> Where he's like farm. jumping into a X-Wing fighter going to just risk his life. It's pretty cool. And that also helps kind of squash some people's complaints in Rogue One that Jyn Erso went from just being like, oh, I don't know about all this to giving that amazing speech saying, now I'm fully on board and I'm your fucking leader. That's not a failing of writing. That's reflecting exactly what happened in the original film. So I think it's all great. This is one that this segment is named for. A young Jedi named Darth Vader who was a pupil of mine before he turned to evil, helped the Empire hunt down and destroy the Jedi Knights. He betrayed and murdered your father. Now the Jedi are all but extinct. From a certain point of view, that works, but it also um, doesn't. Yeah. Kind of, to me, sounds like he's referring to two different people. Yeah. So it's hard to reconcile that as what we now know, how the story went of Anakin turning. This sounds like Obi-Wan was training somebody named Darth Vader. Mm -hmm. And that, that yeah. person turned evil. It's a little hard to wrap your head around that one. Mental gymnastics, as you say. I always reconciled it with Obi-Wan Kenobi trying to protect Luke and yeah. probably mm -hmm. selfishly wanting Luke to join him 
in the quest to save the universe. Mm -hmm. I mean, ultimately, you know, I guess I reconciled it that way. But I mean, we've always considered Ben Kenobi to be a good man and, you know, mm -hmm. just one of these legends. And to, to hold that information back would not be the greatest thing to do oh, to yeah, a child no. who's never met his father, you know? Mm -hmm. It is, like you said, kind of selfish. But then again, in his position, what do you say, knowing that like this kid is the only hope, he is the new hope. Your dad and I were great friends, but then he did some messed up stuff, so I had to kill him. Yeah. <laughs> but then he didn't die, and now he's this evil tyrant. It's hard to hold out that pill and tell the kid to swallow it and get on the fucking spaceship with you. Especially when it's like your first afternoon hanging out together. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I know we've met around town, but I killed your dad almost. <laughs> but what John said, I think, is the way to kind of wrap your head around it all. Is like, I think he's just kind of like twisting the truth a little bit or withholding some info back to get Luke to be on his side, kind of. The meta conversation on this, the meta from a certain point of view conversation is whether or not Lucas actually had decided in, in, in his head that Darth Vader and Anakin Skywalker were the same person mm -hmm. because he has notes that are publicly available that he was writing at the time in earlier drafts that show them clearly as different characters. All right. Mm -hmm. But then again, here's the one thing that makes it all work for me and makes me not get bummed at him for seemingly twisting the truth or altering history. There are plenty of stories that I have going in my head, whether it's the idea of what an episode is going to be like or an actual Star Wars story that I'm writing or a video treatment, whatever it is, where in your head you, you have all these different ideas. And I know that I have things that concepts that I'm like, yeah, that's it. That's the one. But I've got another one hanging there on the back burner or maybe vice versa. So who's to say Lucas didn't have this thought? And even though it wasn't the one that went down on the page, he might have very well been like, yeah, I wonder if I could make it be like his dad, maybe, you know, it's, he's just thinking it. I don't think he's necessarily and, and fully not bullshitting. to hang on this point for too long, but I, I would say, what would Luke's journey have been like if he had known that Vader was his father from the start? Right. So if you want to believe it was planned out or just make it okay in your own head, Kenobi was really, by making Vader the murderer of his father, I mean, that's the catalyst for joining the rebellion. And I mean, he's got a vendetta sort of for lack of a better word now whereas if it's like he's your father it's a different journey to be like well now i want to go meet him he's my dad you yeah. know as opposed to i want to go jump in an x-wing and destroy everything he's ever mm -hmm. touched which is i think way cooler motivation for the rest of his journey but it's also it's interesting how this has like in needing to be retconned in 1980 or 19 83 who knows when he actually like made the call like this is what this actually means has become part of what the jedi and sith dynamic is or what it means to turn to the dark side and it actually makes the whole thing so much richer agreed the idea of just oh i'm bad now versus i killed that person mm -hmm. who i formerly was is really powerful storytelling shit. and if it's like if he didn't know all the way back then it was possibly the happiest accident in the entire <laughs> making of a new hope and it makes lines like Kylo Ren, your son is dead. Yeah. I killed him. Mm -hmm. He was weak. You know, that, that whole thing, it makes it so much more powerful. Mm -hmm. It's got goosebumps on my whole body. The force controls <laughs> all goosebumps. <laughs> Always. <laughs> That's the only earthly application we figured out, the force and our goosebumps. <laughs> we can't move stuff with our mind yet. We could get goosebumps, though. <laughs> We're working on it. All right. Here's a great one. And these blast points... Too accurate for sand people. Only Imperial stormtroopers are so precise. What? Yeah. <laughs> um, that one doesn't I, check out. I have something that I now um, 
know and understand. Can't fix this one, man. You, this is. I just, think I have it. Okay. Does anyone else? I, I mean, de- Nick, you might. Death Troopers. That's all I can think of. Ninety-nine percent of Ben's experience with stormtroopers, probably because he's been trying to stay completely out of sight, avoiding all contact with Imperials. It's all clone troopers who were all badasses, and all the ones that rolled with him, all the arc troopers, yeah. mm-hmm. are badasses, very precise, top-notch soldiers. So I like it. He doesn't know that they're all dipshits out there now. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I'll I'll take that. Accepted. Case closed. How did they, how did, were they painting the laser blasts back then on each of the pieces of film? By hand, yeah. By hand, right? Wild. Yeah, because so I was thinking crazy. that same thing too. Like when Han Solo's running through the Death Star and there's like 40 of them, he's chasing like eight to 10 of them down the hall and then there's 50 of them that start chasing him back and just misses everything that they miss everything. Yeah. <laughs> it is an interesting question. <laughs> That's a problem that all action films have with heroes. I mean, it's just something it's, it's in the genre, whether, you know, sci-fi action or just regular war film, whatever. I mean, unless it's a true story, start to finish dude was injured in the battle or whatever. You're Jack Ryan's of the world. They're just not going to get shot. You just can't do it. Like everyone's going to miss them because the story has to go on. Season three has to happen. So Dude, that scene in Commando when he actually storms oh the God, compound. Dude, it's one of my favorite scenes in with film history. I watched that movie a hundred times. With the bulletproof flowers in front of him. Yeah. My dad, he pointed that out to me at like 12 and was like, watch this shit. Look what happens. We would actually count the number of shots in a clip and all this stuff. And yeah, it's just so a, good. It's an action movie trope. You know, you know what's interesting to me just, just talking about that scene is when they start piling up all the Jawas oh, yeah. and they burn and they burn them. Like as a kid, when I saw the movie, like Jawas were these, like in my mind, these really cute little creatures that, you know, mm-hmm. just had red eyes. And as, as a, I'm sure they have paintings of what Jawas look like at this point, right? Like with their hoods down? I don't yeah, think with we've their seen them down. under the hood. I've never seen Under the Hood before. You've yeah, never seen, seen Under it. the Hood? Okay. No, no, but no. I'm sure there's a rendition somewhere of what a Jawa looks like, right? I don't think there is. I bet they're not doing it for exactly the point you're making. The shit, it's, it's dark shit. <laughs> they're just burning them. 3PO is just throwing them on Throw, the pile. I know. Yeah. And, and like how many are still maybe just passed out or, or whatever, yeah. not dead, <laughs> that they're just burning these little children-like <laughs> aliens. And it's like, in my mind, it was that yeah. was one of the heaviest moments when I was a kid of the whole thing when they, when they, when they did that. And, and just the history of what Jawas are, who you know clearly don't have compassion for robots, but still... A life, right. nonetheless, you know? Same thing can be said, and there's now, like, some great stuff in, in the comics and things about the Sand People, the Tusken Raiders. They're, like, a tribal community, species, whatever, and they actually have, as part of their mythology, their legend, their belief system, the experience of Anakin coming to the village and killing all those people. It's like this, this story of this demon coming and purging their village. So they've had this relationship with outsiders for a long time and it, i mean they're natives you know what i mean so it is a lot darker could just calling them sand people is like i mean pick the racial slur you want to insert there it's essentially that right yeah gnarly i forgot about that whole thing with anakin killing and how much that affected amidala right mm-hmm. yeah yeah that's brutal people know what they look like right ish are they uh, human just, are they humanish they're humanoids i know i've never seen anything with them fully unmasked without the respirator and everything Nonetheless, they are a people, right? So I think it's cool that they've started to kind of humanize them in some of, some of the expanded stuff. And it'll be cool to see what the interaction's like in the Obi-Wan upcoming series on Disney+. Plus. 
taking place between three and four. I'm sure they're going to involve them in a big way. Quick little search. They're definitely humanoid. Uh, and there's only like stuff in comics, it looks like, with their face unwrapped. Oh, so you do see their faces in comics? Yeah, a little bit. It's not much. And then, All right, next point. Yeah. I'm Luke Skywalker. I'm here to rescue you. Leia says, who? Luke says, I'm here to rescue you. I've got your archer unit. I'm here with Ben Kenobi. She says, Ben Kenobi? Where is he? At no point prior to this did Leia refer to Obi-Wan as Ben, but when Luke mentioned him, she sounded like she knew him. Yeah. That's just something I noticed on rewatch. She was just like, Ben Kenobi, let's go. But at no point was yeah. there a reference of her using that ever. Well, I noticed in Clone Wars, they called him Ben two or three times in the last season. Okay. Maybe season six. Mm-hmm. And I, I bet they did that for this because otherwise he would have just been known as Ben on Tatooine. Yep. Well, the, the Tantif was going to Tatooine. For them to be able to launch that's the true. escape pod right over Tatooine and land on Tatooine, you're, I think to imply that that's where they were heading with the droids. Uh-huh. So I'm, I'm, I'm thinking that it's possible Leia had the intel that he was hiding out on Tatooine mm-hmm. under the name Ben Kenobi. You convinced me. Right, but I guess, I guess the gripe is whether or not they knew him as Ben or if that's just a name he took totally like in yeah. seclusion. I'm just, I'm just wondering if Leia had some rebel spy info like Obi-Wan, that's what she calls him because that's his name, but she would recognize the name Ben Kenobi from her intel, from her briefing, you know, of like, yeah, yeah. we found him, we know where he is, he's on Tatooine and he's hiding under the name Ben Kenobi. So when Luke says it, she knows exactly who he's gotcha. talking about. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. How long was he in hiding for? 19, because Luke is 19 years old. Right. That's right. Luke and Leia are both 19. So Ben, for all intents and purposes, has been watching Luke from a distance, right? For sure. There's a moment in Rebels, right? Yeah. And this upcoming series, this live action series with Ewan McGregor, supposedly explores that and there will be some interaction because he clearly knows him. You know what I mean? He's like, old Ben. It's a series. It's not going to be a movie. Series, right. Right. Yeah, yeah. Obi-Wan Kenobi series, yeah. Oh, Which wow. will be sick because they'll get deep in character development. The idea being that he was in the same way that, that Bail Organa took Leia to Alderaan to raise her and hide her. Luke was sent to Tatooine. And we've kind of reconciled this as far as we've said, like, hiding a kid named Skywalker on the planet where Anakin Skywalker is from and is searching the <laughs> galaxy for him. Uh, but I don't know which one of us made the point, but it's like hidden in plain sight kind of thing, like... It's very clear in the prequels how much Anakin hates Tatooine, so he's not ever going to go back there. I mean, I don't yeah. think he, it's like yeah. the last place he would actually look because, you know, he never wants to connect to his past. So Ben has just been there also able to hide. Obi-Wan's been able to hide because nobody's looking for them. You know, that I think the line, if there's a bright center of the universe, you're, you're on the planet that it's farthest from, is deliberate to say, like, it's not findable kind of thing, mm-hmm. you know? All right, let's get into we We're already talking about so many little trivia bites and tidbits and pre-Easter eggs. But let's officially get into the den of antiquities. Over a thousand generations. It is the dark Saber. A Sith Wayfinder. Dark science. Cloning. Secrets only the Sith knew. The original title is said to have been Adventures of the Starkiller, which then evolved into Adventures of Luke Starkiller, and then finally just Star Wars. Mark Hamill liked a tweet of mine the other day when he tweeted something about Starkiller. And I wrote hashtag the Starkiller saga and then just said, can you imagine? <laughs> Think about that. If the whole thing all along had been the Starkillers and not the Skywalkers. Yeah. It doesn't quite roll off the tongue the same way. No, it's darker. I'm glad he had your, Adam, you, you mentioned your little thought bubble off to the side when you're writing. I'm glad that the second one made its way in. 
Yeah, same. I mean, with a lot of this stuff. And then, like we mentioned earlier, on screen in 1977, it was just Star Wars. Logo would fly at the screen, and then the crawl would come up, and it just started with, it is a period of civil war. April 10th, 1981 re-release of Star Wars is when they added episode four, A New Hope. So, Feldy, do you have any memory of going to see The Empire Strikes Back and seeing episode five and being like, dude, what did I miss? Where are the other three? (laughs) Uh, no, man. I, it's funny how the mind works, right? I've always in my mind remembered episode four, you know, because I've been such a fan that that's always the way I, I just, in my mind, I'd imagine George Lucas just kind of had this plan, but you know, now that we're talking, of course, there wasn't really this grand plan for all of it. But I was, but it's funny, like that Mark Hamill liked your comment, Ryan. Like, uh, I just think that he, of all the people like in, involved with this whole thing, he has just been the most stoked. I mean, he's just always yeah. been engaged. Yeah. He's so stoked on everything, on all of at, it, at all times. He's a ball of stokedness. Yeah, from the morning and to even, the night. Even at the end of Force Awakens, it's like just that one moment. And you can just tell he is giving it his all, just not yeah. saying anything. It's just yeah. that he's so into it. I love that because, you know, Harrison Ford definitely became the biggest actor, right, from the series. And yeah. mm-hmm. and he, he, in the end, like all the stories you heard about these sequels, you know, he didn't seem that excited. And uh, I can only imagine Mark Hamill just like that when he got that call. Watch any behind the scenes stuff, especially Last yeah. Jedi, where we know now that obviously Mark Hamill ha- took issue pretty strongly with the path for Luke in the film itself. The, the, just his story in The Last Jedi and his death and all that. He, he, he wasn't on board at the beginning. But that said, you watch any of the behind the scenes stuff. And when he walks in the room, like on set, he's like a little kid. It's just like a fan. He's a fan. You know? Like that's what yeah, it he, seems like. He's a fan. He even said... In the early days, because he was such like a theater nerd, he would want to go check out everything. He wasn't just there on the days he was shooting. He'd come hang out and be like under like on Jedi. He wanted to get up in the Jabba thing and play around with the controls. You yeah, know, and yeah. he, he he said he got in there and got all sweaty and got out. And they're like, what the hell did you do? <laughs> go back to makeup and clean this up, please. You know, like star of the movie. He's just there to hang. But it's funny that despite that, he also he tried to go back into theater and do some things. And he tells the story in the same interview with Frank Oz actually interviews him. He was opening, I don't remember the name of the show, but Carrie Fisher came to see the opening. And after she's like, what's this bullshit on the playbill? She just called him out. She's like, you were in this and this. How is there no Star Wars on here? And he's like, I want them to take me seriously as an actor and not, you know, think about Star Wars. And she's like, fuck you, get over yourself. Like, <laughs> you're Luke Skywalker and I'm Princess Leia. That's the way it is. You know, I'll tell you the thing, the thing I remember the most, you know, before seeing Empire Strikes Back was um, Mark Hamill's car accident, you know? And I mean, there was so much press about it. And obviously there's no internet back then. So I was going into the movie theater expecting like this mangled face, you know, because all the plastic (laughs) surgery discussions that were happening that the press had and and how... it really has how his face evolved naturally and became the legend that Luke Skywalker is with the sequels and how it just worked, you know, that, yeah. that, you know, and I'm sure at the time he was devastated because, you know, how could you not be? But it's just really worked for the, um, the way Star Wars played out. It certainly added to his character and, and they were able to work with it and write it in ways that, yeah, his whole made look. It work and give him even more strength as a character, you know. Speaking of writing... Lucas did his first draft 
1973. It's weird to think about it in that context. Thinking of 77, that's like, you know, right up leading up to the 80s, which is where this movie kind of sits in my mental picture of history. But I mean, early 70s, he was doing this when, again, the world was way different immediately after Vietnam, all this kind of stuff. It was a 14-page treatment. He didn't have a full script, and he shopped it to every studio, supposedly, and everybody said no. Universal and United Artists both passed. Yeah, those were like heavy hitters that turned him down. Hopefully, whoever officially said no <laughs> reconciled that before they went to their yeah. grave and <laughs> made peace with it. What's your, uh, what's your legacy at, at, um, at Universal? What was the biggest moment? Um, well, I turned down Star Wars. <laughs> How many labels turn down the Beatles too? I mean, it's the same thing. Yeah. It's like Nirvana, the whole thing. With yeah. these game-changing events, it's like, you know, you're not, you can't all take risks. This is true. At one point, there's so much funny stuff in the original treatment. At one point, Luke was a 60-year-old general and Han had green skin and gills. There was. Ralph McQuarrie's first concept drawing for Chewbacca was pretty goofy looking, but actually wound up being used as reference for Zeb from Rebels who plays kind of a Chewy-ish kind of character there, you know, the big, he's the heavy on the, on the mm-hmm. rebel side. And if you look at him side by side, it's straight up. Yeah, they pulled that, they definitely pulled that exact Macquarie concept art and just reused it, which is funny. They, they do that a lot still. I mean, even the, in Rise of Skywalker, yeah. the Emperor's Throne is a sketch from way back in the day that Macquarie did. So they're definitely going to that well as much as they can for any unused concept art. Ralph Macquarie, by the way, for anyone who doesn't know, was the concept artist who became a legend because of Star Wars and then, of course, influenced Doug Chang and Ryan Church and dudes who followed him and are now big names in Star Wars. He's really, could be argued, the reason we have a podcast. He got the film sold. Yeah. Lucas brought him in and said, I need, this is not coming off the page. I need you to make this look. Give me something to sell this. Exciting for me to take this in and pitch it. And that was, for all the stories go, the studio execs at Fox were just like, blown away they were like this is gonna be the best thing ever you know when they saw the drawings that he did which that's just that's crazy but again we've talked about this a few times goes to lucas's ability to put a team together he's he's a hell of a producer the kyber crystal was originally the main focus of the force there's a killer macquarie drawing of it of them like huddled around it yeah it was this object it's like you know the holy grail whatever it was like a source of power for the whole thing so it's interesting that Later on, again, mining through the original stuff, it was used and then developed into what it is now. The studio, ILM Industrial Light Magic, was founded in 1975. It was one of the first ever sort of standalone visual effects studios, Yes, I guess. And this is what we talked about earlier, creating all this technology from scratch. They spent so much time, and you can see this in the documentary, they were so behind. Wasn't they were almost done with principal photography it was a year yeah they, a full year and they had not filmed a single yeah. thing like lucas walks in a year later and they're like sorry dude we don't have anything to show you yet and he's like he's like dude we are supposed to be finished with this thing in two weeks yeah. like what are you talking about you know building models building um, camera systems cameras yeah uh, which is the biggest thing is that the motion control system the idea that like you can do multiple movements multiple passes of the same movement with your camera to do different exposures or add different elements. So you got a dozen TIE fighters. You have to do multiple passes if they're all going different directions and they're cutting in front, you know, all this. So they had to literally create that stuff that you can now buy on Amazon to, you know, work with your iPhone. They made it up. And that was what Industrial Light Magic came out of and became the massive visual effects studio that it is now. 
there's some really good sort of casting legends, so to speak. Other people who read for the roles of Han Solo, Luke, Leia, Kurt Russell famously read for Han Solo, and you can see in that same documentary and a lot of other places, him reading. I think he would have been all right. He wouldn't have been Harrison Ford, but I think he, based on his, his audition, not bad. One thing you notice when you're watching that documentary, Empire of Dreams, and you get to see all these original audition tapes, which is so freaking cool that they have that footage and you can watch it, but Harrison Ford, Mark Hamill, and Carrie Fisher, you just know. Yeah. right. And, and it's not like they're just only showing them. They show a lot of long scenes being read by other actors and actresses auditioning, but you just know. Mark Hamill especially, man. Yeah. He just like— I just got goosebumps thinking crazy. about their two auditions. You, there, you see like two or three lines each, but after seeing yeah. all of the others leading up, not to say that those people aren't good or great actors in their own right, but what we know these characters to be and what Lucas intended— they already had it. Yeah. Like when Carrie starts speaking, the combination yeah. of softness, but a vibe that commands respect. She's like this. She's a princess. She's a diplomat. She's like a fighter. It's like all there just in her vibe. And the others, it's like a joke. Again, I feel bad because they're good at whatever they did. But damn. It's meant to be. It's just undeniable. It's more engaging, I think, specifically with Mark Hamill and Carrie Fisher's, uh, you know, the little clips you guys are talking about. They're just so much more engaging in their, mm -hmm. and it's just a, an audition. So, I, I mean, they nailed the audition is mm -hmm. what they did. You know, you're, you're saying, you know, someone like Kurt Russell, obviously we know him as a, a good actor and he would have been a fine Han Solo. But these audition tapes, they nailed the audition, which I'm sure is an art in itself to just get the gig and then do well in the gig. But you got to give it your all and, and really be likable in that room and, and both of their auditions really were just so captivating uh, compelling very like yeah captivating and, and warm believable you know? like they seem it's almost like yeah. they leaned leaned into the camera when everyone else was like kind of like yeah 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 thinking yeah. of the line the lines rolled off as if you're leia already you know like just rolling off the tongue it, it was yeah very <laughs> awesome God, I'm so glad it worked out. Yeah, just so glad it worked out the way it did. It's like, you know, during Force Awakens, like when Han Solo dies, it's like, God, I don't, I don't think I've ever like cried that hard in a movie. Oh my God. Like, it was rough. It was like, <laughs> I mean, I was so affected by that. I think I saw that movie, I don't know, maybe like nine times in the theater, you know? And it's like every time I just sit next to my wife and she's like, God, you're crying again. It's been eight times you've seen this movie. And I'm like, you don't understand. Like, he's like this father figure. Like he had become that through yeah. the movies, you know? And and um, really awful that they had to kill him. Dude, and then in The Rise of Skywalker, I hear people talk shit about this part so much, but when he comes back as Ben's memory, mm -hmm. Kylo's memory as he's turning back into Ben, and <laughs> I can't talk right now. <laughs> you can do it. You know the part, I mean, you know, when he just, when he brings back the line and he says, Dad, and he says, I know. Yeah. Yeah. What a line. What a moment. And also Harrison Ford just stepping up yeah. to the plate, you know, yeah. as for, for the guy who wanted Lucas to kill him in yeah. Return of the Jedi. <laughs> like he's wanted to be out of the game yeah. for 30 years, but stepped up in the final film and delivered one of the most powerful performances of his time in yeah. the shoes of Han Solo. What's cool about that, I think, is Harrison Ford didn't want Han Solo to be killed just to be killed. But I think the point was that 
Han didn't have a point anymore. That's what Harrison was kind of bringing up is that like, what's Han's purpose besides mm-hmm. selling more action figures? So he wanted him to make a sacrifice. Let him do something meaningful. Yeah. I think that he would have no problem coming back in Force Awakens or Rise of Skywalker because he was, he had a purpose and that purpose was trying to turn Kylo back into Ben. So I think he gladly for yeah, his yeah. 100% rate came back. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> I'd heard so much that Harrison Ford didn't want to be in, you know, really involved with the sequels. And mm-hmm. for me, I don't want to know anything. I'm not doing recon. I don't want any spoilers. So when I saw Rise of Skywalker, when he came back, I just I had no idea that that was oh, coming. Same. Holy I had shit. no idea. <laughs> and it was so good. Yeah. And you, you mentioned him becoming this this father figure to people and literally becoming a father in the story. Like I mentioned earlier, Carrie Fisher was that for me. I was, I mentioned this before, young enough that Star Wars was always a part of my life. So I wasn't like a kid that had Slave Leia bikini fantasies. Like she was this maternal character for me. So, I mean, anytime that Leia theme plays, I'm just, I'm done. I'm destroyed. I'm wrecked. I'm just like tears everywhere. Yep. That's the one. Real quick. One more thing about Harrison Ford during the casting. He was there, sort of there just to feed lines to to the people in auditions and through that, it became apparent to Lucas and everyone else involved in casting that he was the guy, whether he was becoming the character or he was starting to shape the character. His chemistry with these other actors, just it just sort of revealed itself, so to speak. Well, he had an unfair advantage of auditioning for days and days when everyone else got come in, do your read and leave. You know, it was kind of cheating. It was like he did like a whole se- se- season of a show, basically. <laughs> it's like, yeah, I know who this guy is now. And like he go. didn't have to just, ask the director for another go because he knows as soon as the next person yeah. walks in, he gets one. So he's just like, yeah. I'm going to give myself a note on that last read. <laughs> yeah, just go ahead and roll. Yeah, I'll talk. Okay, now I'm done. Next scene. <laughs> Peter Mayhew was working as an orderly at a hospital in Yorkshire in the UK when he got the role of Chewbacca. So just straight from scrubs to the Chewbacca suit. Was he an actor at all? I don't think he had done any acting, right? He was just a big dude that It, I, got the it was role. like through the grapevine. I know a guy who knows a guy who's really tall, I think. Yeah. And they mention it a little bit in Empire of Dreams where I think they kind of just had a some sort of call based solely off of height because mm. they needed a specific like seven foot two or something like that. Literally, George Lucas walked into the room with Mayhew, looked up and was like, we got yep. our Chewbacca. It was like that simple just because based off of height. Uh, cool. I love Peter Mayhew's story. Just I love his voice, how he tells it. I think... We found him, or whatever he says. He just got that cool, like, old, uh, grizzled English accent. And also, this is, it's so funny, you see in the behind the scenes, he's speaking all of Chewie's lines. Like, Chewie had lines on the page. Mm -hmm. Yep. And it has to be a totally surreal and kind of funny experience to know Peter, or know Chewie as Peter's voice, you know? And then you go see the movie, and it's these growls. So, like, I wonder, I don't know, it's cool to think about. Let's see, screening... Of the, of the first cut with no visual effects, Lucas showed it to Spielberg, De Palma, and other friends. Just, you know, just friends, Spielberg, MBD. Spielberg liked it, but everybody yeah. else. Spoke. Overall did not go well, but Fox loved it. So after all the, what the hell are you doing with this space movie? Or they called it, what, what's going on with the science movie? You know, they would say to, uh, <laughs> yeah. to uh, what's his name? After all that waiting, they were blown away. He delivered. And you think about everybody, we talked about this before. They're just doing their scenes, kind of making fun of it, not knowing what the hell they're doing out here in the desert, having no idea what would be put in, all the stuff that had nothing to do with actors that was happening in the Bay Area. 
with ILM, Mark Hamill talks about sitting down and being like, oh my God, this is our movie? This is unbelievable. Can't imagine it. Oh, dude. The score was maybe the only thing to exceed Lucas's expectations, he said. This was like the one thing that he thinks went right at that point, you know? He's like, the whole thing has been a disaster pretty much from start to finish, but he walks in and hears the (laughs) score for the first time and is just has his mind blown so from a certain point of view it's the only thing that's gone right all the time is the <laughs> yes it's true you know that's like the most undeniable thing no one no one's like yeah the music's not that good yeah though. think what you want about phantom menace but you get dual fate oh, so man. It's like yeah yeah it can be argued that he is as big of a part of star wars straight up as lucas yeah it's lucas's story but it wouldn't be the same yeah there's no way just one line you fought in the clone wars is a cool line now, having the Clone Wars. Cool to hear. That's it. Six words, seven seasons. <laughs> <laughs> it's just an example of what, Nick, you always talk about mining for things. Granted, this was yeah. the biggest thing. It was the big chunk of gold sitting on top of the mine before we even had to dig a hole. But all of that from that one sentence, amazing. The Emperor gets his first mention as well in this during that early scene in the, you know, the round table on the Death Star with Tarkin and everybody else, Tarkin says, the Imperial Senate will no longer be of any concern to us. I've just received word that the Emperor has dissolved the Council permanently. The last remnants of the old Republic have been swept away. Now, knowing what we know from the prequels, it's just so much cooler to hear those words. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot to base just the prequels off of. I know we always joke about, oh, cool, we're... This movie for kids is based in like politics and separatists and all that type of stuff. But a lot of it comes from just that line. There's a whole story to be told there. Just the emperor and the Senate and all that type of stuff. It's fun to ponder how much of it was in his head. Yeah. Yeah. First mention of the Kessel Run and Corellia, Han's home planet. This is where the fun begins. Line that's used over and over. It's interesting that they had Anakin do that line. Yeah. And they're slightly different, right? Um, Here's where the fun begins. I think, actually, Han says, here's where the fun begins. And Anakin says, this is where the fun begins. Oh, okay. This one's cool. Leia's in cell 2187. Finn's trooper ID is FN2187. Obviously deliberate. Love that. Stormtrooper bumps his head on the door. We've talked about this before. (laughs) It's hereditary. It's in his DNA. Jango Fett was a klutz. (laughs) So are the stormtroopers. So you know that dude's a clone. (laughs) This is funny. I I didn't know this. You can see Carrie Fisher mouth the word shit when the trash compactor starts closing yeah. in. It's pretty, like, you got to look for it now that you know, but you could see That's it. Sweet. It's pretty awesome. Lots of noises in the Falcon cockpit after the Death Star escape were used in L3s, like her body moving, right? You only hear them in the cockpit, so I think it's specifically her getting, like, coordinates, kind of. There's, like, really, like long kind of beeping like swells almost oh Um, when she's doing the calculations in solo yeah yeah got it Mm -hmm. that's sweet this next one is one of my favorites george lucas was so sure after all the debacle of making the movie that his movie would flop that instead of attending the premiere he went on vacation to hawaii with his friend spielberg uh where they came up with the idea for raiders of the lost ark and also made a bet 2% 2% of Star Wars and 2% of Close Encounters that each other's movies would be bigger. <laughs> that was a productive trip. Early drafts of the script, R2-D2 could actually speak standard English, and he had a rather foul vocabulary. <laughs> Although all the English speech was removed, many of 3PO's reactions to it were left in. Mm-hmm. That's cool. I, I love how, and 
Heather talked about this in the in the Marvel episode that the droids and everyone who has sort of non English language, it's all written as dialogue. Yeah, just like Chewie. Yeah, I mean, there has to be something for the humanoid to react to. So it makes sense. Last one. While Lucas was filming on location in Tunisia, the Libyan government became worried about a massive military vehicle parked near the Libyan border. Turns out Lucas had to move his Jawa sandcrawler farther away from the border. (laughs) Perfect. (laughs) I didn't know that. That's awesome. Tunisian government receiving threats of military mobilization. Who do you think? The Libyans! <laughs> Run for it, Marty. Another thing, I still have not watched this movie, but it's now available on HBO Max. I'm going to watch the shit out of it and all of this dude's other movies. Akira Kurosawa is a Japanese filmmaker that hugely influenced Lucas and has subsequently influenced other filmmakers and, and writers in the Star Wars universe. I mean... If you watch The Mandalorian, what's it called, Disney Gallery, Favreau talks about how he, instead of looking at Star Wars, he went back and watched all the Kurosawa stuff. And that's, mm-hmm. you know, instead of trying to sound like Deftones, you go back and you listen to Bad Brains. So this dude is huge and not as well known in the States as he probably deserves. He made a movie called The Hidden Fortress, which I've been told Star Wars is this plot, mm-hmm. but it's set in ancient Japan. It's a samurai story. And maybe we should do an episode on it for this podcast. Sure. After yeah, we watch I it. love that. Yeah, I've never seen so I've you said it's on HBO Max? Yeah. Yeah, I've heard them reference it so much and I'm like I don't even know where to watch that to- sort of thing, so it's good to know. I've been putting off buying it and then this happened and I'm like sick. <laughs> All right, moving on. Let's officially talk about our favorite stuff. I love you. I know. Favorite scenes, favorite quotes. Feldy, what do you have? If you if you had to give it a couple, I mean, these aren't the droids you're looking for, you know. And he just, <laughs> and it's just because again, it's like you're 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 understanding for the first time the power of the Force and how powerful Ben Kenobi actually is, and that that's one of the first times you see it when you're like, holy shit, how are these guys not going to get in trouble when they're in like you know they're in outer space, Las Vegas, you know, cruising around in the middle of <laughs> everywhere, and how are they not going to get caught? And then you realize you've got this legend. I mean, I'd say, I mean, for me, it's probably um, my favorite quote because it comes back, right? That whole idea, Ray uses that power a lot, right? In the sequels and to know that you've got the power over someone else's mind with the use of the force is like so, it was so heavy to me as a kid to think Mm -hmm. that they could actually put that, put that thought in someone else, you know, a Jedi can do that, that that was like, holy shit. And just the history of Obi-Wan Kenobi and, and sort of who he is as a mentor that to me is just one of my favorites in A New Hope. And the confidence, like the, the swagger that Alec Guinness brings in that moment, like, yo, I don't have time for this <laughs> shit. These aren't the drawers you're looking for. He's just Rad. chilled back in his seat. Like I got this. Yeah, I think I mean there's so there's so many and like I talked about earlier when they get when when Leia just awards and you can see because Leia's just this like badass you know to me she's like just this warrior woman during most of it like she's standing up to Darth Vader you know when she sees her planet get destroyed and she but she just takes it with stride like she's this warrior the whole movie and then the end when her hair's down and and she's just like you know the royalty that she actually is at the end of the movie it was like I mean, that's when I cried a couple of weeks ago during that moment of realizing the power that this woman really yields. 
Yeah, and that goes back to the casting again. An actor being able to pull off all of those different sides of a person is not a small task. Can I just say I really appreciate the, uh, the vulnerability here on this program? bunch of grown men talking about their feelings and crying during star wars really i I mean look a lot i think a lot of us as musicians i mean we get into bands there's not the really greatest intentions it's like i mean as a kid it's like you know look at me i'm important yeah (laughs) mom and dad notice me you know there's part of that in there as well like i'm Mm -hmm. I, i can do something i can like look at look over here and like star wars is so i mean with all these we're we're referencing you know these mother figures and father figures these are characters that have been in our in my psyche my whole life since my first thoughts they've been in my psyche of like characters that i look up to and i judge myself as a parent against these characters so yeah i mean it's a really big deal and, and another thing as musicians i feel like we probably connect even more because of the way the awareness that we have of the music even though it's so expertly written that it, it becomes it's subconscious at moments i'm like so much more compelled i look back all of my favorite stuff all my favorite movies back to the future indiana jones star wars boogie nights even just the soundtrack for that like when the music comes on it elevates my experience and that metal ceremony like you said it's just so it's so genius because it's the same same main melody but williams his genius is really how he uses harmony with those different motifs to completely change the vibe it takes this like pretty cool little melody and makes it this amazing triumphant piece at the end that takes you like up 10 notches you know the percussion too on the last yeah, version man. you know how it's kind of doing the like dun dun don't stuff yeah. under the melody and the counter melodies and yeah raises the stakes for sure yeah and that just reminded me of the imperial march you know that oh god i mean what's better than that i mean that's how when we opened for no doubt they would open with the imperial march every night on tour yeah dun, 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 dun. <laughs> you know they would come out to it because it's like such everybody knows it's just like such a classic hit songs from an orchestral score <laughs> in the late 70s what about you, Billy the Key? Oh, tonight on Billy's Radio Hour, we're going to examine a couple of favorite scenes and quotes. Um, if I'm choosing one favorite scene, which is impossible to do, but under our revised format... It's not impossible. <laughs> I used to bullseye favorite scenes in my T-16 back home. They're not much bigger than two meters. It's, this film is the reason we're here, you know? And, and so deciding what the most impactful or favorite part of it, it's, it's hard. And I think in our group texts, before recording this, Nick, you mentioned, you know, you said, hot take, this is my least favorite original trilogy film. And I think that's okay because it's not, Empire is one of my favorite films, not just in Star Wars. It is my favorite film in Star Wars, but of all time, you know, it's, that's not what this film is about, I don't think, is being your favorite in the Skywalker saga. Um, Yeah. So choose the whole thing as your favorite, right? I mean, it's it's hard to do. So I will say from a, a nostalgic point of view, it's easy for me to choose the cell block battle as my favorite scene because mm-hmm. I've talked about this on the show. I loved as a kid to, to kind of like make believe, imagine, you know, like scenarios when I was like playing outside or doing whatever I was doing. I had like that house I was born in. We had a tree out front that was like perfect. It was real low to the ground to hop on. And it was like your, my speeder bike from Jedi, you know, and I would just sit <laughs> out there yeah. for hours, like imagining I was doing that. And so Feldy talked about his connection with his dad and Star Wars and 
that scene and and like imagining and and playing out that scene down the hallway with my dad as a kid is one of my most vivid childhood memories and such a happy memory you know so every time i watch a new hope and it gets that scene i'm not just stoked because it's such an amazing sequence i mean all of it's the, the dialogue's awesome han i love everything han's just display of his character in that scene is so good but um so witty yeah but just yeah i mean i I would probably include the trash compactor in that too it's just that that whole that whole Mm -hmm. sequence you know the death star death star escape and my favorite quote is same it's kind of broad and sweeping and obvious but it's like it's the birth of this whole idea i'm gonna go with remember the force will be with you always nick what about you officially (sighs) well i'll go on record in the age of kind of pitting things against each other, I'll I'll just throw this hot take out there that this is my least favorite of the original trilogy. Empire being the best, but Return of the Jedi being my favorite. My, I, I think my favorite scene is really rewatching it this week. That final lightsaber scene, the the, the duel between Obi Wan and Vader. I don't think it was my favorite growing up. It certainly was pivotal, but I think knowing the background of the two of them after you know this the prequels and the clone wars and all that type of stuff i think that that scene holds its own weight almost in like your head not necessarily on screen but knowing that that's the final battle leading into what would then be my favorite quote if you strike me down i shall become more powerful than you can possibly imagine you know there's there's so much world building there you know just there's so much force building there i guess is a better a better word and it all connects back to the prequels which is you know that relationship between obi-wan and and anakin and and then getting to see that in a little bit of a deeper level in the clone Wars series so that that my answer right now is definitely rooted in a very like modern day answer it definitely wasn't my favorite scene or quote growing up but it's something that i think holds a lot of weight now yeah recontextualizing everything changes so much you know yeah my favorite scene now is different from growing up same thing growing up it was almost definitely the trench run i mean as a kid i wanted to be a pilot I saw Iron Eagle and Top Gun and was like, Dad, please send me to military high school. I want to go be in the Navy. Dude, have I said this to you guys while we've done this yet? That Top Gun is like why I do anything artistic at all in my life for that same exact reason. (laughs) Yeah, My dad took me to see Top Gun in 86. I was six years old, saw it in the theater and left there. This is obviously, you know how your brain remembers things rightly or wrongly. I don't know. I just know that I'm told I was obsessed and what I was obsessed with was being in a movie though, not actually being in the Navy. Uh Like I was like, wait, you can be in movies and fly jets. And like, that was where my brain worked, how my brain worked at six years old. So that's awesome that 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 was something for you too. But yeah, that's like why I started doing theater as a little kid. And it's just, it's crazy. I mean, obviously I saw Star Wars first, but that like dogfight fighter pilot kind of vibe. I just loved so much. And there was something about the trench. It like appeals to the same, same part of your brain that as a kid wants to build a fort, Mm -hmm. you know, it's kind of claustrophobic and you like get down in there and then you get, you know, you hit the target. It's like this whole movie, very simple. Mm -hmm. There's a straight line. There's a round target at the end. And I, I just loved it. That was probably the most. And then the trash compactor scene and that, that whole bit, was great too the idea of jumping down in there to something being in a place where you're not supposed to go she has to blast the door open and then 
you know, the Ninja Turtles part of my brain wanted to go jump in the sewer too. <laughs> so like it was those couple, <laughs> but now because you know, in con the context of the, the larger story, the conversation when Obi-Wan tells Luke about the force and his father from a certain point of view, mm-hmm. that's it for me that yeah. moment. And then there's the one edit on YouTube called Obi-Wan remembers the truth. We'll put it in the show notes. Damn. I just, I ball every time I watch it. I don't think I've watched that. Man, I need to do that. Oh man. It's set to the score of the leftovers. Oh, Max Richter. It's, huh. um, it's that legendary you Max Richter it. song from the leftovers. If yeah, you like soundtracks and you don't know who Max Richter is, do yourself a favor and fix that problem. <laughs> it's great. And that leads me to the quote, which isn't as soundbody as use the force or hokey religions and ancient weapons, which is probably my number two hokey religions and ancient weapons are no match for a good blaster at your side. I would say, damn, it's just so hard. <laughs> Help me Obi-Wan Kenobi or my only hope makes me cry. So much of this other stuff is funny, but it has to be Obi-Wan's explanation of the force. The force is what gives a Jedi his power. It's an energy field created by all living things. It surrounds us and penetrates us. It binds the galaxy together. His rhythm and his tone and like just everything. What a master. Yep. You know? Professional actor. I feel like what, what we all know and feel about the force is informed as much by Alec Guinness's vibe as anything. And delivery of that line. So that's mine. Cool. Look, we all four picked different scenes and quotes. I'm so hey, proud hey. of us. All right. Let's hand out some medals. Favorite scenes. We nominated the opening battle, introduction of C-3PO, R2, Leia, and Vader on the Tantive Four. The conversation in Obi-Wan's home with Luke, the story of Anakin, the story of the Force, lightsaber introduction, Leia's message. The most Eisley Cantina, where we meet Han and Chewie. The cell block rescue slash battle where Luke and Leia meet, trash compactor escape, get in the garbage chute flyboy, that whole nine yards. Obi-Wan and Darth Vader's final lightsaber battle, Obi-Wan becoming one with the Force. And then, of course, the Death Star Trench run, TIE Fighter X-Wing dogfight, Death Star destruction, Luke channeling the Force, the whole nine. With 38% of the vote, the Death Star Trench run is the winner. Second, most Eisley Cantina with 25%. Not too surprising. I'm very surprised that the Cantina beat the cell block. Mm, I'm surprised. That is weird. But meeting Han, I mean, that's just a great moment. It's true. But he, he's so good in the cell block. I mean, the whole thing is just yeah boring conversation anyway. It's all so good. <laughs> yeah. And that TK421, do you copy? Thing? Like, that's just ingrained in my head. Also being the biggest Boogie Nights fan of all time, how Buck Swope uses that. Uh, now, this one is, you know, it's got the TK421 modification, <laughs> which is a, <laughs> so we do that right here in store. Very small price. My ASCAP publishing is TK421. That's dope. Okay, favorite quotes. The nominees are Princess Leia Organa. Help me, Obi-Wan Kenobi. You're my only hope. Obi-Wan Ben Kenobi. You don't need to see his identification. We don't need to see his identification. These aren't the droids you're looking for. These aren't the droids. Han Solo. Pokey religions and ancient weapons are no match for a good blaster at your side, kid. Another one from Leia. Short for a stormtrooper. Huh? Obi-Wan Kenobi again. 
If you strike me down, I shall become more powerful than you can possibly imagine. And closing it out, Obi-Wan Kenobi one more time. Remember, the Force will be with you, always. The winner, with 33% of the vote, if you strike me down, I shall become more powerful than you could possibly imagine. It's the heavy. Good one. That's the heavy. Second place is Remember the Force Will Be With You Always, 20%. Obi-Wan wins. Actually tied tied with Help Me Obi-Wan Kenobi, You're My Only Hope. That's kind of the winner in, in terms of like pop culture For sure. staying yep. power, right? Yes. So we do test bay? Yeah, let's go on to test bay 94. A major weapons test is imminent. Test bay 94. You may fire when ready. Okay, John Feldman, favorite ship in Star Wars? It's interesting. Millennium Falcon, for sure. But when I was a kid, like Darth Vader's TIE Fighter was what I had as a toy. I remember I had to paint the wings, you know, black <laughs> for the, um, that TIE Fighter. And I had a little um, action figure of Darth Vader. And that was what I had to play with. But I, I just think it's because I don't think they had a Millennium Falcon as a, as a kid, as a toy. But I mean, the, the Falcon, so first time when they opened Galaxy's Edge, I mean, that was the thing that, I mean, I, I had my kids. My kids were so annoyed. I had them like film me walking <laughs> around the entire ship. And the whole thing was so annoying to them. The complete opposite of like what it's is supposed to happen. You know, <laughs> Disneyland, I know. Yeah. It's supposed to be okay. the other way around, but no way. Parenting before Galaxy's Edge and parenting yeah. after Galaxy's Edge. All right. Either or, light side or dark side. Not in life, in Star Wars. God, the dark side is so powerful. And like we talked about earlier, like that idea that like... I mean, I guess without me having survived like my own dark side in life, you know, through my own struggles with alcoholism and depression and anxiety and all that stuff, I wouldn't be so driven to find the light. And so, I mean, to me, it's like one doesn't exist without the other. I mean, Vader didn't bring balance to the force without succumbing to the dark side first. It was the lessons he learned that brought him back to the light. This is the only question for which I will accept. Neither. It's It's not even neither. It's really both. It's both, isn't it? Right. Yeah. Powerful light, powerful dark. All right. Would you rather have been born when you were born, getting to see the original trilogy in theaters, all three, or be born around the time, you know, when your kids were born, knowing a world where all of it pretty much existed already. So the prequels, there are no biases at all. You just get the whole thing. You know, there's this thing that, uh, and I'll answer the question, but there's this thing called the four agreements that my friend told me about where when you die, that there's a hierarchy to sort of like karmically be born and you're able to actually choose the time that you live. You choose who your parents are, but you have to agree to not remember any past lives. And you also have to agree to believe that time only moves in one direction that you have to agree to these things before you're reborn. And, and I, there's something about that theory that just makes sense, that I had to choose my parents to learn the lessons that I learned and to be driven to be this, the guy that I am today the, and the successes that I've had in my life. Um, and so that being said, in this universe where I live, I mean, I wouldn't trade it for anything to have had the experience of watching Star Wars when it came out and having it throughout my whole life. Because, I mean, the excitement that leads up to a new Star Wars movie, I don't think I'd have that if I wasn't there in the very beginning, at least the way that I do have it. Yeah, good point. All right, buddy, I know you got to head out. 
But before you do, you have anything you want to talk about? Anything going on? Projects? I know we're all in quarantine, so it's not like, I mean, there aren't any shows to go see. <laughs> the force will be with you always. <laughs> what are you recording right now? Anything you can talk about? Uh, Blink-182 and The Fever are my two kind of main projects. This kid, Jaden Hostler, that Travis signed is pretty cool. Just, you know, cruising away. Just another day at the office, making a Blink That's record. Me. No big deal. <laughs> Thanks for coming to do this, dude. Yeah, thank you. Oh, thank you guys. This was so fun. You know, I can say for me, just having you here, this this whole experience we're starting to have with getting guests on the show that I'm like, well, yeah, we're just hanging out with John Feldman for the day. It's uh, like respect is through the roof, but first and foremost, a fan, obviously, you know, listening to Goldfinger Records when I was starting my mom and dad notice me phase. So thanks for that. <laughs> thank you guys. That was fucking rad. Well, let's close, of course, with a quote of the week. Nick found this great quote from another filmmaker, David Lynch. He says, you never know when ideas are going to hit you. You can get ideas just from sitting in a room daydreaming, just feeling the air. I think people are like radios. They pick up signals. David Lynch. Thoughts come from somewhere. I love the idea. Number one, it, it reiterates the staggering fact that this whole universe is something that one dude just came up with. Yeah. Mm -hmm. He aggregated all the experiences in his life in storytelling and everything and created from thin air the Star Wars universe. And that blows my mind. And then the idea of just picking up signals sounds like the force to me. For sure. Yeah. And George I Lucas is so good at picking those up. We've talked about that a lot. Yeah. He just gets a vibe from a person. He thinks they're the right one for the job and he goes with his gut, goes with his instinct, you know, with trust in the force. Yeah, I think about that a lot, and it's way more fun to think it's the force, but <laughs> I think about that a lot in, in my daily life, just the people that, you know, 99% of the people that are come into my life, I'm like, I feel like this makes sense that they're here, you know, and it has a lot to do with, I guess, my personality or my signaling or the force, whatever you want to call it. But uh, yeah, there's definitely something to that. I love that. I think people are like radios. They pick up signals. It's very cool. Feldy, before you go, where can we find you on social media? John Feldy. On Instagram, that's my handle. You know, and all the other things as well? Twitter, yeah. MySpace, Friendster. Yeah. All of it. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> if you're looking for the podcast, you can find us on Instagram at ThankTheMakerPod, on Twitter at ThankTheMaker1. And if you want to support the podcast, you can go to patreon.com slash ThankTheMakerPod, become a patron, get involved in voting for a medal ceremony, submitting content, questions, AMAs, the whole nine yards. Check that out. My personal social account is Adam the Skull on all the stuff. On the webs, I can be located at William Ryan Key everywhere. And I'm everywhere on those social meds uh, at, at Nick Bayside. And again, I, I'll probably say it every week is uh, I'm just happy you guys are reaching out, following all that type of stuff. Keep it up. Oh, and I haven't plugged Batu Crew in a while. That's another Instagram page I run and it's kind of slipped to the back burner a little bit because Disney's been closed, but it looks like Disney's working on opening up in about a month or so. So hopefully that Instagram page starts to become a good place for uh, another landing page for the community. Magical. Before we go, we also want to mention that for the next two episodes, we're going to go ahead and just do in a row, episode five, The Empire Strikes Back, episode six, Return of the Jedi, with two amazing special guests. Our first Star Wars actors, actually. Next week, we'll have Emily Swallow, who plays the armorer 
on The Mandalorian. And then we're closing out the original trilogy with Ashley Eckstein, voice of Ahsoka Tano. We are so pumped. Look at what we did. Look at what we did. (laughs) We built this podcast on rock and roll. (laughs) We sure did. Thanks again, John, for being here. Thanks to everyone for listening. And until next time, may the force be with you. 